All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Shots Fired podcast. We are really excited for this episode. We got a treat for you guys. We've got in studio with us, Andrew Soli Sullivan. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the trip all the way uh, from Virginia to be here. Appreciate, Appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Oh, thank you guys, man. Appreciate yep. being here. Absolutely. Hey, um, let's do this. Before we get started, just so everyone knows who you are and a little bit about your background, I'm going to kick the ball to your court and let you explain okay. it because you've got a hell of a, a, a background in the military and what you're doing now for the police community. Tell everybody who you are, what your background is in the military and what you're doing now. All right. So yeah, the, the wave tops, um, the day after nine 11, I walked into a recruiter's office. Uh, I decided that the life I was living wasn't for me. I wanted to do more and I wanted to make my family safe. And, and I did that. I, I joined the Navy and the goal was to be a SEAL. So I went right to boot camp, a school and buds and made it through buds, did a career in the SEAL teams, um, both at uh, SEAL team two and Naval special warfare development group. Uh, ended up retiring in 2020 and got out and started doing some for-profit work, training law enforcement, military, um, government contractors, uh, or government agencies. And while I was doing that, I was watching TV, watching news and seeing critical incidents play out with law enforcement. And I, I had this conundrum that the, the cops I was training weren't the ones that I was seeing on TV being involved in these incidents. And the, the public sentiment that was growing seemed to be pretty negative. And it was that point I decided that I, I needed to do something to help the community out, um, the law enforcement community, because I, I've always been passionate about you guys and, and what you've done for me and my family and all the deployments I've been on. So I decided to start a nonprofit. And uh, the mission of the nonprofit is community safety. And the way we achieve community safety is, is by making sure that law enforcement is up to date on the latest and greatest tactical advantages and, and being able to provide you guys with training that you otherwise wouldn't be able to afford. So we, we bring in um, tier one special operation veterans and we fund all the training and we provide it to really whoever wants it. Okay. Nice. Well, thanks for coming in here. Kyle and I just recently picked you up at the airport and I'm actually a little shocked because <laughs> you're wearing pants and it's yeah, Sacramento. Man. <laughs> it's like 109 degrees outside. This guy Marlon I know didn't give me the heads up. So yeah, yeah here I am. Yeah. Both of you guys are wearing pants. Yeah. Well. <laughs> hey, speaking of being hot, um, we would like to thank uh, Cold Plunge. Uh, therapy out there. So ice barrel, thank you for being a part of the show. If you guys are looking for a, an ice barrel or some type of cold therapy, make sure you head over to icebarrel.com. Use promo code SFP, get yourself a discount. Mark and I use it. Soling, your whole career, you said you were uh, Yep. I'm thinking we could set it up right now and maybe do it probably good. Good. Well, you're wearing pants. It's a, yeah. it's a little well, hot. Right take them off. Don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> Gain all the experience from a cold plunge. Head over to uh, icebarrel.com. Get your guys self an ice barrel and discount using promo code SFP. Nice. And TAC Ops. Thank you for sponsoring and being a part of the show as well. Head over to SWATConference.org. Get signed up for three conferences a year. TAC Ops, tactical conferences. Mark and I are going to be at the Nashville one coming up in August. So August 22nd through the 25th, we'll be there. If you see us, come up, say hi. But uh, we have a, uh, they have another show coming up in September. Yep. In Washington, D.C. Yep. So SWATConference.org, get signed up. And again, if you guys are looking to host our class, head over to SavageTrainingGroup.com. They have a variety, a ton of different classes. We highly suggest uh, either hosting a class or if there's a class in your area, go check out their course schedule. It's all on there. SavageTrainingGroup.com. Nice. Thanks. Okay. Let's, uh, let's dive into this. We have a lot, we have a lot that we want to talk about and uh, we've had a couple prior seals on the show. You're the first development group guy. Um, your level of experience is, is second to none. So you, you have so much value to offer to, to us, uh, what that was like, and then what you're doing now for the law enforcement community. Uh, we talk about it all the time. There's just, there's just not enough training in this job. So, yep. uh, for you to take the time to come out and do this, we, we really do appreciate it. Um, let's talk a little bit about your military experience going through buds. Uh, give, give the viewers a quick snapshot of what that was like. Cause I know everyone that went through buds has their own story, right? Like you, and you hear them all over the internet, but what, what was a little bit of your experience? Like, I like to think that I was a little bit older than most of the guys. So it was a little bit of a different experience for me, meaning, you know, my biggest complaint day to day, was just waking up and being sore. Unlike the, you know, the 18, 19, 20 year old kids, I call them kids. Cause I was 24 at the time. 
and they don't necessarily feel the physical pain. It's more of a mental um, stressor for those guys. But but for me, man, I, if I'm being honest, it was right after 9-11 and all I cared about was getting through Bud so I can go overseas and do my job. So it was hard. It was a kick in the nuts. It was cold. It was wet. It was sandy. It wasn't fun, but it's the best time that I'd never want to have again. And I, <laughs> I still have friends from Bud's and, and still talk to them. And you go through something like that with somebody, you form a bond that, that takes a lot to break. So I, I look back at, back at it pretty fondly. Hell week. So I, I just have a quick question on hell week. I mean, yeah, what was your it. probably most memorable experience during hell week? We like those. I, I mean, the end of hell week was pretty damn memorable. Right? <laughs> when it's, when it's over. Yeah. Well, they, you're on the berm and you, they kind of try to not let you know when it's going to end. Um, and it, at some point you're so tired that you really lose, start losing track of the time <laughs> and you're on the berms looking at the water and you don't realize that all the instructors are coming up behind you with a giant American flag and they tell you to turn around and then they secure you just like that. And it's, wow, you know, just as quick as it starts, it, it was done. And really that, that's a huge test. And once you make it through, through buds, you feel like there's nothing or one hell week, there's nothing yeah. that's going to stop me finishing buds. Yeah. So I, I remember that pretty fondly. What'd you do after that? Like, what was the first thing you do? Sleep, eat? Oh, I, I ate, yeah. I ate like two large pizzas. <laughs> I mean, you, you, I think I lost 20 something pounds in hell. Oh, shit. It, like you, wow. you're eating eight MREs a day. I don't know how many calories. That's, that's a lot of, a lot yeah. of calories. Right. And you still lose weight. That's crazy. And yeah. You finish up, they give you like gallons of Gatorade and two pizzas and you just sit there in wow. a little happy place and eat. And then they carry you inside and put you down and you go to sleep. <laughs> you do a medical check first yeah. and you sleep for days. Really? So yeah. I, that's what I was curious about. Like how long after hell week do you have to do like a turn around and come back? Uh, well, you finish hell week. I think it's Thursday night, Friday, something like that. Um, and you got the weekend off to recover. And then Monday you start again, but it's called walk week. So there's no real physical activity. It's just letting your body heal because yeah. you, you, I mean, you're completely yeah. effed up. With that. Yeah. And you, you know, you can't really go to a hospital because they're going to look at you and have no idea what's wrong with you. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's keep you moving. So your body doesn't lock up and a lot of classroom stuff. Um, so you're still learning, but the physical kind of goes down a little bit in the week after, but then the week after that, it's full steam ahead again. Wow. Wow. So after buds, uh, you get through that, then, and then you got to go to SQT. Correct. Right. Um, and then is that where you would get your Trident and the full package or yeah, you know, you it changes. I think in my class, we, we got our Trident before SQT. Um, oh God, it feels like it's so long ago. I don't even, I don't remember, but I think we got it before and then we went to SQT and did it, or we got it during SQT, one or the other. Um, and SQT just becomes more of a, you know, buds is a kick in the balls. SQT, you actually start to learn stuff in a little bit of tactics, shooting, diving more proficiently than you did in buds. It's to get you prepared to roll into a team and hit the ground running and to be able to operate with the guys that are already there. So going through that school, they get you up to speed, then you make it, then you go to a team and then you're Correct. ready to go. Uh, no, you're ready to be a new guy. Yeah. And the teams you'll, you'll have, I know we kind of talked about this before where, you know, you need to have fundamentals and baselines yeah. to be able to learn advanced stuff. Right. So the goal of SQT is to get you to a team with a baseline fundamental understanding of what that team is doing. And then they bring you in and they'll teach you the way they specifically do it. Hmm. Um, okay. So you, you finish that you then become the new guy on the teams. What team did you go to? And I went to team two, Virginia beach and yeah. a new guy being a new guy sucks. Right. But yeah. especially being an older new guy, I was 25 and yeah, that's true. I was older than most of the guys that were one platoon guys. And uh, it, it's really just keep your, uh, your ears open and your mouth shut and try to learn as much as possible. And you know, it's tough for some guys, like a bunch of alpha dudes just they want to be in charge and want to make decisions. But you don't realize till you get there that you don't know shit yeah. because you just went through this program that told you you're the best, you know, things that sliced bread. Right. And then you check in the team and everybody's been through that program and nobody really gives a shit. So it's yeah. all right, dude, take the trash out and be the first one at work, be the last one to leave, have your shit ready to go. Your gear's good. Everything's set up. If you have questions, ask, otherwise just keep your mouth shut and learn. I kind of think that almost correlates with like law enforcement. You go through, I mean, it's, it's extreme differences, but you, you go through the Academy and then, you become an officer and then now you get on the street with your FTO and yeah. you kind of said the same thing. Like you, now you're on the team, but now you're the new guy and you realize that you don't really know anything. Nothing. I, I mean, there's a pretty good correlation of that. So what's it because you're, you're, you're built to be a leader. I mean, that's what you are when you're, when you're on that team, but 
what's it like to, to follow? Like, cause we kind of pre-talked about this, but right. what is it, we know what good leaders are. We talk about leadership a lot, but what's it take to be a good follower? I, I think trust <clears throat> is the big key word, right? And it's, it's a lot easier as you go on in your career to become a better follower, but followership is very important to me. Um, someone who has a master's in strategic leadership, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about being a follower vice a leader. And it's really hard. Like I said, when you have a bunch of alpha males in a room and everybody's capable of doing the leader job, yeah, but it's not their position, right? So you really have to have trust in that chain of command and understanding that some of the experiences the guys ahead of you have had that you haven't had yet probably qualify them a little bit more to make some of those decisions. And it's really impinging on you as that younger guy to learn more, always be learning and always be trying to learn the job of the guy in front of you, but also respect the decision-making that's going on in front of you too. So, you know, you, you might have a different idea, but it doesn't mean it's a better idea. Yeah. And maybe it is a better idea, but it doesn't mean their idea is a bad idea. So you just, it, it's, it's something you need to be communicating in a team and talking about, which probably doesn't happen a lot in your community. And it didn't happen a lot in our community for a while until we realized the importance of, of that leadership and followership. And we started learning about it. So you mentioned experience. Uh, we, we just did an episode with John Becker and, and he talked a lot about this. He's a um, CEO owner of Aardvark and he brought up a good point, And that was um, a lot of leadership and law enforcement lacks the experience, right? So, and I guess what I mean by that is you get guys that that start their career and, and all they think about is how do I get to the top the fastest, right? right? So they skip over all the important things of, you know, doing the day-to-day shit like patrol, get, you know, narcs, gangs, canine, where they're getting exposed to a lot of um, street level stuff, right? right. To, to kind of gain that, that ex- level of experience so that when they do get to the top, <clears throat> they have a clear understanding of what that was like. So you mentioned experience. Do you think that at least in your world in the military and what you did, um, experience plays a huge part of good leadership? Absolutely. Uh, Especially when you go into war and you're asking guys to do things. If you haven't done it yourself, you lose all your credibility. And I think in our community, just the way that that we structure our hierarchy, that that doesn't happen a lot. Um, I'm not going to say it never happens, but it doesn't happen a lot, especially when we were, you know, my whole career, we were in sustained combat almost the entire time. So I always knew the guys around me had combat experience and had done the job uh, for the most part. And our communities, the difference between enlisted and officer is, is pretty, you know, pretty cut and dry. And the responsibilities of enlisted officer are pretty cut and dry as well. So if you think of it in a business sense, the officers are looking up and out, the enlisted are looking down and in. So for us, tactical decisions on the battlefield are coming from the senior enlisted guy, the guy with the most tactical experience. And anything going strategy is probably coming from the, the senior officer to meet whatever the strategic mission that yeah. that school, you know, command has. And it makes sense. I mean, what, what do you think, Mark? I mean, when you say that, that to be true, that you, you get a lot of these administrators that are, are making those decisions for the guys on the ground and they're lacking that experience themselves, which yeah. makes it hard. Yeah. And, and most of those people that are, the, the officers <laughs> recognize that and they know, and they see those people as, oh, they don't know what they're doing. Like this doesn't make any sense. And I think that's, there's a huge disconnect. And we, you know, we talk about leadership and you'll probably hit on it, but how do they, they, they need to self-recognize that. And how do you address that? Because you can promote yeah. and be a leader without a lot of experience. You just, it's just have to a be, roadblock. It's a yeah. constant roadblock that you're hitting. But I, I don't think it's really for us. It's been recent that people start prioritizing leadership as a tangible skill, something you can read about, learn about, study and become better at. Yeah. You know, everybody's always had this opinion. Well, you're born a leader. Well, no, you're not. You might be born with leadership skills, but you have to study and practice to become a good leader. Right. And it, I think it took a, lot, a long while for us and the teams to kind of realize that and start to apply it. And I'd like to see law enforcement do that more. And I know there are departments that are doing that, yeah. but not, not a lot of them. Yeah, there are some progressive agencies that are, that are starting to do that. Yeah. But how do, how do we now get more as a collective to get on board with well, that? Well, we need that qualitative and quantitative data. Right? Hey, hey, this department's <clears throat> yeah. been doing it and here's the changes we're seeing because of that. And then getting the word out. Like we, we have to be advocates for it. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have a platform for it. And that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah. So, okay. So you're in, uh, team two. Yes. How long, give us a little bit of breakdown of how long you're in team two and then, and then, um, going into selection for dev group. Yep. A little bit about that, of what you're comfortable talking about and then life after that. Yeah. So I did, I did two cycles at team two, which is a workup and a deployment, um, both, both to Iraq. Um, you know, even being there in the height of the war, it really wasn't, they weren't great deployments. So, you know, I was at a crossroads after that second deployment where I was actually thinking about getting out, but I just, 
it, it was an unresolved thing for me. I felt like I had more to do. So I opted to screen and got selected for dev group and spent the rest of my career over there. And man, am I glad I did. It, it's where I wanted to be. And it was what I joined for. And it just, it took me six years to get there, but totally worth it. Yeah. It seems like guys that are, that are open about that, you know, see, it, it, what they say is like, when, when you get to that level, it's like, it's like, you're the it factor, man. Like, that's it. Like, this is what I fucking came here to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of it's timing, just being in the right place at the right time. And I, I, I got there at the right time and we were working and it, it's the mentality there is a little different. There's, there's great seals in all the seal teams. So you, just because you didn't go to that command doesn't mean you weren't a great seal. It's just a different, uh, it's a different job set, you know, same background, different job set. And the guys over there, it's, it's for what they're doing at that command. It is second to none, you know, unparalleled. And you step into that place and everything is so fast and efficient and high functioning, it's you either get on board and keep up or you get left behind, which how, is- How many years did you do total in, in the Navy in, until you retired? I medically retired at 18 years. 18 years. Um, so yeah, so Damn, 18 total. I'm sorry? That's a good run. It was, it was. And it, you know, it, it, it was either medically retire or sit at a desk for two more years and, and retire the regular way. And I, I don't do well sitting still. Yeah. You, you told guys us can that before. Tell, so, <laughs> and I'm like, nah, man, let, let's, let's call it and let's see how else I can find something to do that, that helps. And that, that's kind of what I get into. I'm so, just, oh, sorry. Go ahead, dude. No, I just was curious real quick. Um, what would you see the biggest difference between being on dev group and then being on, on team two? You said those guys are very fast and efficient. I mean, yeah, it, the, it's experience level. Uh, and it, if you can narrow it down to one thing is it is trying to think about how to phrase it without, without saying the wrong things, but it's, it's the ability to be as good as you can be at your job and then trying to find ways to be better. And you have a lot more opportunity and access to do it at that command because mostly older guys, meaning more mature, they have experience already. They've, they've all got combat experience and you're just another guy in line that has the experience and you want to be the best. And there's this, this, work ethic and maturity over there that isn't with everybody on the other teams. You know, a lot of guys have it, but not everybody. And mm -hmm. over there, man, to almost to the man, it's, it's a different mindset and guys come in and do their job every day. How about, how about mentorship? I mean, are there guys that you were that like, this is my mentor? Yeah. Yeah. You check in and, it, and you're literally given a, a one platoon guy, guy who got there the year before you and, and hey, whatever questions you got, he's your guy. Mm -hmm. If he can't answer it, he's going to send in the next guy. And, you know, it's a different mindset going into that place, especially when they're doing sustained operations downrange, because you don't have time to mess around with a new guy because you're in war in months sometimes and in, in weeks sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, after you finish training. So you hit the squadron and you're working, you're training, you're getting ready to go to combat. There, there's no time for, for messing around with dudes. So whatever you need to give those individuals coming in as new guys, they're going to get. And it's encouraged to say, if you don't know something, open your mouth, right? It wasn't that way on, on we call it the white side, right? It was, if I don't know something, I'm going to ask my peers because I don't want to look like an asshole. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, the culture was much different in that sense. And I hope it's changed now, but uh, it, it wasn't that way. And, and I function much better in the, the second. You know. I like that you say that because mentorship is huge. And we, yeah. we do, we, we talk a lot about mentorship too in the law enforcement community is, you know, a, be a mentor to somebody. Yeah. Right. And that, and I don't mean like <clears throat> go up to somebody and say, Hey, I want to be your mentor. No, like <laughs> fucking be a good, be a good dude, yeah. be a good, you know, advocate, good cop, <clears throat> do all the right things so that you're a good mentor for somebody else. And that's, that's how we make this job yeah. and, and, and everyone else below you. Better. Absolutely. And being a mentor actually makes you better at your job too. Yeah. hundred percent. I've always, I've always improved on my professional skills by teaching other people. Yeah. And you know, mentorship does that. So. Yeah. Yeah. So life after the military, man, um, <clears throat> I, uh, I'm curious you being on such a high functioning team like that, like you then transitioning out, you medically retire. What is that like get, going from you dev grew, you medically retire. Now you're just regular old civilian <laughs> <laughs> dude. Walk us through that. Like, what is that like? It, it was, it was different. So I got out during COVID. So Oh man. It was weird because I wasn't going to work anyway because everything was shut down. So it's almost like I started my transition before I even started my transition. Um, and I didn't really have a plan. Like I, I knew I wanted to do something, 
But I also knew I had a retirement coming. I had a pension. I had insurance. My kids were good. And I knew I could do 1099 work if I needed to, to make money. So I never felt the rush to jump into the first thing. And I knew I could take my time and figure it out. And I also knew money wasn't the primary motivator for me. So um, it it was a little bit of a culture shock. And I I told the story before, um, within a couple of weeks of me leaving my squadron, they got, they got recalled for a mission. And I just remember sitting there thinking, well, my phone's going to ring any second because I just left. There's no way they can do this without me. And then I watched the plane take off without me. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll just go fuck myself now. And, and huh. you know, <laughs> for me, it was just, it was eye opening that the train left without yeah. me. Right. Yeah. And they, you know, I did my job, which means the guys that were following me up were ready to step into my shoes and do my job for me. And they didn't need me. And, and I took it as a compliment. And yeah. I, it, that was instantly made the, the correlation that, okay, I can do this. I can, I can do something else. Everybody's going to be good. And I didn't feel like I was leaving anybody, uh, letting anybody down by leaving either, which is kind of a big thing for guys. They'll stay longer than they should because they don't want to let their peers down. So it, I'm glad it worked out that way. And it made the transition a little bit easier. Um, you know, it's still sucks not going down range and shooting people in the face, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I can't do that as a civilian anymore. You know? Yeah. 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 What's uh? so, so since then you've created, what, what, what's your, yeah. So I, I started a for-profit company doing training. Um, really it was an LLC to, you know, for 1099 work. And I started working with a couple of the same people and I was training tier one special operations. I was training, you know, government agencies and I was training SWAT teams, basically people that could afford to hire a tier one operator to come in and teach them tactics. Unfortunately, that's not what was the issue in law enforcement, right? It wasn't the tier one guys that needed my help or the the SWAT teams. It was the patrol officers that were the ones responding to active shooter situations and terror threat and and officer ambush. And as I would watch it on TV, I'm talking to my partner at the time um, who was a tier one uh, army guy. And we're like, man, why aren't they calling us? Why aren't they asking us for help? And we started digging in. I'm, I'm really close to Boston police. I've worked with them since 2010. And, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, what happened when I was up there and we can go into that if you want. But um, I knew something needed to be done. The feedback was I was getting was, hey, they just can't afford it. You know, they have training budgets and in, in they're, they're already accounted for. And unfortunately, helping patrol level officers learn basic tactics isn't really in the budget for most departments. So I came up with the idea to start a nonprofit, find the money and just tap it into my network and and asking for help. And any money we raised was going to go back into training patrol level officers and school resource officers on how to handle these, these high stress critical threat um, incidents. And with this company you started, it's nonprofit. Yes. You raise money yourself. Correct. And you take that money to fund police departments. You're doing all the work. We're training. Yeah, I am bringing in tier one operators to do the training. Um, and and I will do it at times, especially with Boston, just because I'm so partial to those guys. But it, it could be anything from, hey, if I can't get out there to train you, let's look at your SOPs and TTPs and let's refine them. Right. There's a lot of things I can do with departments because I'm only so many people. I only have so many trainers. Yeah. Um, but there's still ways that I can help getting on a phone call and helping you figure out a tactical situation, working on how you do AARs so you can improve based on some of the critical incidents you've already responded to. And man, I'll talk to anybody at any time to try and help. It doesn't have to just be training. And to be honest with you, there's nothing I can teach anybody in a week. That's really going to fix the problem. Yeah. You know, I tell people I'm coming in to identify your, your shortfalls, your weaknesses, and then I will help you build a training plan, but you need to take it upon yourself to continue the training long after I'm gone. And I will always be a resource. So yeah. you can call me at any time and we'll talk about it. Right. And then I'll come back in a year and we'll do it again. Yeah. Tell, tell us about the Boston incident, man. You, you yeah. told us that story on the way here and, and uh, I, I like it. It's, it's a good story. Um, it, it's to, a tough one, man. Um, obviously, whenever we're talking about losing buddies, it, it's, it's hard to talk about, but it also started a great group of relationships for me with, with the city of Boston. You know, I'm from Worcester, Massachusetts. So outside of Boston, I grew up in Massachusetts. I have a fondness for it. Winter still sucks, but you know, <laughs> the rest of the year it's awesome. Um, but I was up there with my team, um, training with BPD. And a lot of times we'll do that because we, we like to get out and try different training venues. So we'll, we'll hit up departments and say, Hey, can we come use your facilities just for a different look? And then we'll train the cops. And that's kind of how I got my start training police was it was just tit for tat. Like you let us use your facilities and then we'll provide you with training. Mm-hmm. And I really loved it. And it really, 
helped to show me how um, how much help police needed because I, I, like most people in the country, had a different expectation of law enforcement capabilities. And it wasn't until I actually started working with you guys that I realized where you actually needed help on the critical incident stuff. Um, but while we were there and I remember, you know, like it was yesterday, um, was when extortion one seven got shot down. And I remember getting the text, um, as my best friend was on that, on a helicopter and, and not believing it. And I called one of the Boston PD guys and we had guys kind of strewn around the city at that point. And they, they went and picked every dude up in the city, brought them back to their cop bar, opened the bar up, blocked the streets off and opened the bar and you know, whatever you guys want, it's on us. And no had, had a line of police cars around the block. And as guys stumbled out of the bar, you know, we, we sat there for hours waiting for the list of names, Fuck, read man. the names off. And it was, you know, 38 people on a helicopter. So it, it, it was, it was a third of a squadron. Like, I don't, you know, that's like losing a third of a department. You know, it's, it's a lot of people. So, you know, we read the names off and, and we, we mourned and, um, we drank and as guys would stumble up, a cop car would pull up from BPD. They'd, put the guys in the back of the car, drive them to the hotel, put them to bed. And they did that till every dude was back. And then the next day they brought us all to the airport and, and we flew home. And then they sent their bagpipe team to all the funerals. And sure. to this day, the Boston bagpipes, I love those guys. They're some of my best friends. Um, they come to every memorial, funeral, retirement, anything we do, if we ask them to come, they come and we'll foot the bill if we ask them to. Wow. And they are just that department has bent over backwards to to make sure that you know the relationship between us and them is is always top notch. So when I started thinking nonprofit, that's it's the only place I wanted to start was Boston Police, and, and that's where we started. And I'll, I'll do anything for those guys. That's fucking cool. That's yeah. cool to hear that they did that. I I, I had never heard that before. Yeah, that's pretty. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'd, I'd hate to think what would happen if they weren't there. And you know, they, they took care of us. They pretty much babysat us that night. So yeah. damn, that's cool. Thank you. Uh, thank, uh, thanks for telling us that. Of so, <clears throat> so you, you start obviously transitioning into the, the, the need for training law enforcement. Yeah. How, w- tell everybody like the, the nonprofit that you started now and kind of like what you're doing now. And like, we, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but some of the equipment that, that cops are starting to buy, you know, SWAT teams at the high end shit, like night vision and you know what that shit's expensive. Like, yeah night vision is very expensive. And, you know, we, we talked about it, like usually in a SWAT environment and like, listen, before everyone fucking get, gets up in arms, that's watching this. Like, I'm not saying don't <laughs> fucking buy night vision, but what I'm saying is, is like, A, they're very expensive and B, you know, in the police world, like we show up in a SWAT capacity, right? Like we're right. flooding shit with white light, yeah, at least in an uh, urban environment. Um, but you got guys running around with night vision on and it, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? And, and like, can we use that money to, to use elsewhere to be able to fund training? Because I, I feel like that that money sh- would be better suited for that versus yeah. a piece of equipment to look cool. No, I, I agree. And I, I, I agree with your caveat there. For me, like one of the hardest things I have to do is not offend police, right? Being able to say, hey, this isn't good enough without offending the, the officers. It's tough. Right? And yeah. it's hard to do because most of the time it isn't good enough but it's not the officer's fault. It's because they're not trained to the level that they need to be trained to perform some of the missions that you guys, I call them missions because of military, yeah. um, the, the, the responses that you guys have, right? Like an active shooter or an active terror. Um, but what I see is there's in training a, a pretty significant push for higher level training and gear when we've never spent the time and effort in learning the fundamentals yeah, and 99.9% of what I do. And when I come in and I, and I'll audit a department before I do any kind of training is to see where they're at and they'll have some active shooter training program that is varsity level moves when people don't even know how to enter a room with an active shooter in clear corner. Yeah. So yeah, if, if you're going to change policy to accommodate the equipment, like you want to bring in night vision, but you require people to use white lights you're giving away your tactical advantage because there's this policy in most police departments where you have to announce yourself when you come in in any way 
right? Because you're worried about getting sued and it's on body cam. I identified myself as police and that guy still pulled a gun, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're not going to change a policy, why buy equipment that doesn't give you a tactical advantage? That's yeah. a really it, good point. You know? Well, and I mean, we're required, you know, we're high visible patches, yeah. we're, we're fucking red and blue. Yeah. Light. Like, it's not like we're, you're not being sneaky it's being there. In the first. No. Now I'm not, and look, again, I'm not saying there's not a time and a place to use it. There, there is, but Mark, you had a good story. You know, you like, I think you guys may have had them and then it was like, all right, guys, you oh, get yeah, your we, nods on. But, but then you're like, but well, I've never even trained with this before. And then you're going out, you're expected to use that in a real world environment. It, it just yeah. doesn't make sense. And yeah. so you're right, man. Like if you're not willing to change policy and, and train with that piece of equipment that you're getting, I don't know, to me, it's, it, I'd rather take that money and spend it, invest it somewhere else where I'm going to, I'd rather have basic fundamental training and be yeah. top notch in that than a piece of equipment that I might use fuck one time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a little pipe dream on, on, on training and, and it comes from my background in the military where I'll do 12 months of training for a four month deployment. So for four months of work, me and my team trained for 12 months just to do that. Right. And in some cases it's 18 months for a six month deployment and law enforcement has a 40 hour in service requirement a year. Yeah. Right. How, to handle everything. To handle everything, right? And you can't possibly expect, some, expect someone to respond to an active shooter when you're dividing all your training up into 40 hours and 12 to 15 hours of shooting a year. So what I would love to see is money get put into a, you know, I, I hate to to, caveat, to use the word, but, um, you know, a change, but the way that we train could be different. What if, what if law enforcement hired more people to have shifts where you work three weeks, train one week every month? Yeah. Right. To think of how much you could get done with one week of training a month, vice one week of training a year. Yeah. And all I know is we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars overseas to help other countries when we could put, you know, half that money into law enforcement in the U.S., hire more people and provide better training. And it doesn't have to be all tactical stuff, too, but you could improve every part of your job just by doing something that simple. Yeah, so, dude, I had I, I mean, asked the first I've heard of that concept, but it makes sense. So I mean, yeah. where, where do you see, like, where, where, what is the biggest uh, fundamental problem that you see in law enforcement as far as our training goes? I mean, is there something that stands out to you that, that you think we could definitely do better on? I mean, obviously you come from the tactical world, so right. clearly that's a problem. Yeah. And, and I, just so everybody's aware, I, when I talk about making changes in law enforcement, it's literally like that 0.01% of high stress, high threat, critical incidents. I am focused on community safety. That is my mission. That is what I tell my donors. I am trying to make their community safer and I'm doing it by giving the people that are protecting them more training in the things that they don't have training in, right? Cops do great at 99.9% .9 of their job, but when they're asked to respond to something where their stress level exceeds their, their abilities, they're making mistakes. And you guys don't train under stress. Maybe some SWAT teams Very do. little, yeah. Maybe some SWAT teams, but certainly no patrol officers. Yeah, very and, little. You know, I can watch uh, a news report on a critical incident from, uh, you know, the officer's perspective or security cameras, and I can see where the training failed them. I can see where they didn't have training because I would have responded in a different way. And to me, that's not the officer's problem, right? They shouldn't be in trouble because they failed right? But it doesn't mean we can't give them better training to help them be successful. And I think to me, that's where the focus needs to be. It needs to be on fundamental skills to work in a high stress environment. Like it, it's, it's almost insulting to me that I spent 20 years, uh, nearly 20 years trying to perfect hostage rescue techniques. And someone thinks that I can give a, a cop 40 hours of training and expect them to be able to do my job. Because yeah, that's what they're for doing. For 30 years, yeah. They're doing a Navy SEAL hostage rescue mm -hmm. impromptu, like with, with no warning, because they just happen to be the closest person to the scenario. Yeah. And in most cases, they don't have any experience. So we're hoping that they do the right thing. We're not teaching them to do the right thing. We, it, you, you, go ahead. I'm just clearing my throat. Sorry. Uh, no, and maybe you get lucky, like Nashville, and you had a couple prior military guys that were already on scene, right? Or- more than likely you end up with an Uvalde where it's paralysis by analysis. Nobody wants to make a decision and nobody does. Yeah. And that is the standard that most patrol level officers are trained to in this country at best, maybe a 40 hour program that was developed by police who've never been in an active shooter situation. Yeah, that's really true. Cause the general public expects all of this stuff 
cops that are in law enforcement or law enforcement community hope that they can do that. Yep. And the reality yeah. is, is that well, you can't. Yeah. And yeah. then the department on top says, we're going to give you 40 hours, 40 hours of, yeah. of training that covers report writing, de-escalation, yep. shooting. And they only do fitness. it just because they're mandated to. So That's to check it. the box. It's to cover the ass yeah. of the yeah. department so they don't get sued, right? Hey, yeah. I yeah. don't know what happened. They had training. I don't well, know because why they when, didn't go in. Yeah. yeah, because when something goes wrong, they can go back and say, well, we provided this training. Yeah. And that, that's what we're required to by the state. And yep. they did. So they've done their job. So you come in and you provide training. What is something that, of all the training that you've put in, what is something that you, you've noticed when you come in, you do the audit, and you're looking for deficiencies, like what's, is there a commonality of, of what you're noticing? Yeah. The commonality at that level is there's, there's no fundamental baseline. There is no two training programs or curriculums that are the same. I don't even come in with a curriculum. I don't want to, because it takes time away from fundamentals, right? So I will take your curriculum. I'll make it better. Like a lot of times it's antiquated. Like they're, they're using tactics from 10 years ago and we just try to bring them up to speed but it really, it's these people have never learned how to enter a room, which is, is the, really the basic part of CQB is, okay, <laughs> yeah, I hear gunfire. I need to go in that door. How do I do it safely and, and fast, right? Because speed and violence of action, like we have to get in that room as fast as possible because we're trying to save lives. Um, they don't know about distance and angles and how to put themselves in good positions, how to work with another person. All these things that should be fundamental so that if you respond and then the next time I over respond to the same critical incident, you guys can mesh and work safely together. Yeah. That doesn't happen. No, you're right. It doesn't. It's interesting because both Colin and I have been through EMT school and that is a national registry. It is exactly the same standard across the entire United States. Every training is exactly the same. You go from one state, it is all exactly the same. You leave one, you go across the country, and it's exactly the same. Law enforcement, the academies from police department to police department is totally different. From one county over is is completely different. Uh, Going back to the the stress and the and being involved in critical incidents, um, I fully agree with you. And and my first shooting I was involved in uh, back in 2015, I think I was probably 27, 28, maybe. And after that incident, which resulted in, in a, you know, it was like six and a half minute gunfight, which is a long time. Like yeah. when you're in a freaking gun battle yeah. with somebody, uh, hoping to make it out alive. Um, I, I reflected after that because there was a part of me when that first kicked off where I, I went into panic mode and, and I'm on video, right. And I'm like running in a circle and I, I have no fucking clue why I ran in a circle because yeah. my brain just took over. Right. Uh, there were other people on scene um, that maybe did things where you might look at it and go, okay, this guy didn't perform. And I think the biggest issue, and, and when I reflected on this is like, when you become a cop, you you seriously do think that like, oh, I'm just, I can show up to that call and fucking rise to the occasion and, and, and get in a gunfight and <laughs> yeah. fucking, cause I'm the cop. And <clears throat> I mean, I'm so big on telling guys like, you know, we teach these classes with Savage. It's like, no, you're not that guy. Like you, yeah. you're not just going to show up to something like that, get super stressed out, get all these adrenaline dumps, like cortisol dumps in your body. And you're just going to make all these crazy critical decisions on the fly. That shit doesn't happen. So I reflected after that. Um, luckily I was able to, you know, come out of that panic mode and, and got myself to get angry and enough to get the job done yeah. with the help of my partners. But man, after that, I was like, holy fuck, this is real. And the training that we were getting to be able to get yourself through a situation like that, like I can't think of a time that I was ever trained or it ever been talked about uh, managing stress. But the crazy thing is, is like at a, at a drop of a hat as a cop, dude, you may be getting dispatched to that call. And Absolutely. now, now you're expected to, to fucking handle that call, the, the Uvalde yeah. call, right? Yeah. It, it just fucking blows my mind that, and I still don't get it. Um, because it still doesn't seem like, like we invest a whole lot of time into it is, is managing stress and how your brain actually operates. Yep. I, I don't think there's one hour spent in the Academy learning that shit before you even get to the streets. Yeah. Well, how many times did you train for a situation similar to the one you were in before you were in that situation? Dude, honest to God, I had been a cop for probably 10 years at that point, a, a handful. Maybe a handful. Did you ever feel that stress? No, fuck no. It? not like, even close. So that's, that's, what we do really well, specifically at, at development group is we are able to recreate the stress of war in training. And I tell people the first time you are stressed out to that point where you make those kinds of mistakes shouldn't be on a real target. No, I can look at the AAR from Uvalde and 
I, I would say 75 to 80% of the things that they had go wrong could have been um, fixed on a training evolution. One training day, like we could have recreated a lot of that stuff and fixed the problems before they happened in a real world situation. And that just comes with getting out of your comfort zone and training, right? Yeah. It's, it's really hard for law enforcement to train themselves on critical incident response because there's so few critical incidents that happen throughout a career. And, you know, that's why I recommend bringing in people like me, you know, mm-hmm. obviously not just nonprofit, but there's for-profit companies that do this. Um, if you can afford that, because these are people who did it for 20 years, sustained combat every night going out and being in active shooter situations or barricaded shooter, or, you know, generally just people wanting to kill you just because you're, you know, who you are. Yeah. So it's this vast wealth of knowledge of guys who now that the wars are, are over for the most part and we're not being utilized are getting out and have this amazing abundance of knowledge and mindset on handling stress and leadership development and training and, and how to uh, critique and after action and just want to give that knowledge to somebody else. Right. And it, to me, man, you get to me, law enforcement should be knocking down their door, trying to get those guys in. Agreed. Totally. I agree. What imagine if, if that was the standard across the nation for cops, imagine the amount of cops that would less likely be killed probably citizens that, that are, or cops are involved in shootings where they're, you know, that probably shouldn't have been right. I mean, think of, think of the, I don't even know how to fucking word this, but those types of situations would happen far less and we would have so much less controversy with cops. Right. And over these controversial shootings, if they were properly trained to be able to show up and properly manage a situation like that, probably manage, but just how to handle stress or, or, or yeah, if manage you stress. Talk about the lowest common denominator is giving someone the fundamental ability to be able to handle stressful situations and still work through it. I use skydiving as an example. If you've jumped out of a plane before. No, no. Well, no. anybody that has right. The first jump you do, all you see is toilet paper tubes at the ground <laughs> yeah. like, and you're waiting for the ground to come up and get you. Yeah. By the, you know, 10th jump, it's like, all right, I see trees. I see there's other skydivers. And then a hundred jumps, you see everything and you're out there and you're, you're flipping and doing all this crazy stuff. And then the more you do, the more comfortable you get being in a situation in which you could die. It's the same thing with tactics and CQB, man. You have to work in that environment to be better handling the stress that that environment puts on you. And if you don't train for it, there's no way it's going to happen. Yeah. Is there a way or something you could offer just w- w- just a short something that cops could do right now in their patrol car or their patrol teams, just a, just a, a something about managing stress. Like how would you, with the exception of bringing in a team to, to help and seek actual training, is there something that you could provide? Uh, it, so here's the thing I tell everybody, whenever we go to a range, I know who practices and who doesn't practice. You know, I can look at people's form, how they stand, right? They, you know, I'm a better shot if I come up and I have this really, you know, equidistant stance and my arms are out and I'm in, but you're never going to do that in a tactical environment. Right. And we're training in law enforcement not to take range shots. We're training in case we actually have to utilize our weapons. So there's, there's ways officers can better skills when it comes to firearms, um, manipulation, um, transitioning things that could happen that you shouldn't have to worry about on target that you can work through without having any tactical training whatsoever. And you can dry fire at home and I'll, I'll caveat, hey, dry fire, clear and safe your weapon before you do this. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, how easy is it to watch a YouTube video? And there's plenty of guys that are putting stuff out. That's pretty good. If you you know need help finding the right ones, let me know where you just work on transitioning from pistol to rifle without a weapon, just working out the kinks in your gear. Like, is my retention good? Is it not? Do I have access to my mags? You know, it's just something that I could do under stress. What if I get shot in the arm and I need to do a mag change? Right. There's, there's so many things that we don't think about that you could do on your own time at home, 15 minutes a day that are going to make you better. Cause now that's one less thing you have to worry about on target. So there's always stuff you can do. Yeah. And the cops that want to get better are going to do that. There's just so many cops out there that just don't want to put in the work. They want to show up. They want to put in the 10 hours. They want to collect the paycheck. Right. And I, I mean, that, that's, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to change someone's perspective of that, but. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll play the devil's advocate here because I've seen this in my community when you're working 80 hours a week because you're working overtime to make your living. It's awful hard to ask people to then to go put in training on their own time. Right. For sure. Cause quality of life is huge. Yeah. You need to have that, that, that break, that family time to, to be a, a, a functioning member of a unit. And if yeah. you take that away because you want them to go do jujitsu or go to the range on their own time, 
and you're cutting into the quality of life and morale goes down. When morale goes down, effort goes down. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm not saying the people you're talking about don't exist. They absolutely do. They exist in the SEAL community, any community, right? Um, But there's a lot of people that if they're given more of an opportunity to train in the workplace, vice at home, they would probably put more effort at home as well as in the workplace. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I look back when I was a cop and those that did their 40 hours, yep. didn't seek any other training, were some of the, the mentally healthiest people <laughs> right? because quality of life of being at home yeah. was super important and they were the bare minimum. But I, I look at that and I go, ah, you're pretty smart that way, but also you're, right. you're lacking others. I really like your idea of three weeks, you work whatever your shift is, then a week of training. Yeah. Like that's how you do it. You need it. The departments need to yeah, start adopting that and it, saying, it, you know, it's more this. money, but Hey, there's money out there. We all know there's money out there. It's just, what are we putting that we putting it to nods when we're doing all daytime stuff? I don't know. It, it's how do we spend our money wisely? And it's how do we advocate for change? You know, and I hate bringing up change because it, you know, it, it's what people have been screaming for, you know, defund the police and, and, no, let's figure out a better way to allocate money so that yeah. the, the, the stuff yeah. is going right. And we're, it, we all want the same result. We all want safe communities. We want our officers to be safe. We want our families to be safe. Let's figure out a better way to do that. Well, you know, um, Sheriff Lamb talks about that and talks about running a police department like a business Yeah, and running not a deficit. And then you, but police departments are not run like businesses No, and they don't, manage money and they buy things and like, Oh, we yeah. have this, yeah, well, we got to sell, you know, it's like antiquated. It's just, so is the military, right? The military yeah. style, you know, leadership we have is very antiquated in, in promoting and, and all that stuff. But law enforcement's the same way. Yeah. It doesn't evolve. It's the, it yeah. seems to be the only thing that doesn't evolve. It, no business out there. If they don't evolve, they don't survive. Correct. Yeah. And you know, the environment around you guys is evolving. Totally. It's up to you to evolve with it or get yeah. left behind. Right. And, and you know, like I said, we're advocates as much as we are trying to help. So what's your company called? So my company is Community First Project. Uh, that's my nonprofit. Uh, C1P.org is my website. If anybody wants more information or wants to reach out, you can do it through the website. Um, and like I said, I'll talk to anybody at any time. I, you know, to me, it's important to get the message out. It's important to help as much as I can help, whether that's in person or just jumping on a Zoom call and talking through some some sticking points, maybe in the training. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always available. And are you physically coming out and doing the training yourself or you sent, or are there other people going? I mean, it's, it's both. Um, I, I, I'd like to do that stuff. You know, to me, it's, it's kind of like being around the boys and, and, you know, kind of hold on to my past a little bit, but I love to train and I love to teach. And that's kind of why I started doing this, but I spend a lot of time fundraising and and trying to network and get the the word out. Cause at the end of the day, I can only train as many cops as I have money to do it. And I, I need to always find sources of revenue. So, so how can people donate? You can donate on the website. Um, it's easy. Every little bit helps and it's all tax write-offs. So whatever you donate is, is, is we are a 501c3. You can write it off. Um, we're big, making a big push now for corporate sponsorship. So if anybody's listening that has companies that want to get involved, you know, it, it, we, we look at some of the large block uh, box stores, right? Places where these incidents are going down, they should be willing to invest in, in community safety, right? It's a totally. direct benefit to them. Yeah. So any ins to those networks, um, you know, think about like movie theaters, grocery stores, Walmart, Target, all these places where things are happening repeatedly, then yeah, let's, let's chat and see if we can figure out a way that's, you know, we're helping them and we're helping the communities. Um, and, and obviously grant money, trying to attack that grant market, which is hard because it tends to go to the same people every year. Yeah. And, and uh, there's a, that's a big market. It is. It's a ton of money and we're a relatively new nonprofit with less than a year old. So it's really hard to make a case to justify, um, us just because we don't have the track record yet that some of these bigger companies who've been around for 10 years have. And, and, you know, like alert that's tied into the, the school system in Texas, right? So they're doing a lot of good things down there. So if a, if a department um, gets together and they want to hire you guys to come out, I mean, you're, you're still funding and, and hiring tier one operators to come out and provide the the level of training yeah, for these guys. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So I'll pay for it. I, mean, I do for-profit training too. So any, you know, government agencies, SWAT teams, and even some departments, if they have grant money, they get a budget and they want us to come in on the for-profit side, we'll do that too. 
Um, and what I tell them is whatever the profit is, we'll split it between the for-profit and the non-profit. So if a uh, SWAT team, big city SWAT team wants us to come in, they're also going to fund training for a smaller department because part of that money is going into the nonprofit. Um, same with government agencies. And, you know, we'll, we'll even do threat um, analysis for companies. You know, um, there's been some concert venues that have brought us in to come in and, and train their people on active shooter response. What happens if somebody comes into their venue? Um, so there's a lot of stuff we can do. I hate to say no. And I have this extensive knowledge. And if I don't have the knowledge, I've got the guys that do anywhere from drones to dogs to, to whatever, right? Because it's everything we've ever taken on target. We have the ability to teach from the best people that have done it because that's how we learned. So it, it, it's, you know, we're, we're trying to grow, we're trying to scale, and we want to be able to answer any problem that you guys have. That's our goal. Man. Well, man, I, I like, seriously, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, I, I agree with you that not enough of guys with your talent um, we, we don't, we don't seek that out in the law enforcement community, uh, and we should. Yeah. So I think even this is a good resource for guys. There's a ton of guys that are going to watch this. I know a lot of you are yeah. watching this, hit dude, hit them, hit yep. solely up. Can they find you on Instagram? Do you have an Instagram? Social yeah. Media? Community underscore first underscore project. Um, also if you go to the C1P.org website, there's a link to my Instagram. You can hit me up either way. I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Sullivan. Um, any, any methodology, or if they can reach out to you, you, you have yeah. my contact info, yep. you can link me up. Um, if you need something, reach out and I will get back to you as soon as possible and, and we'll figure out a way to help you. Hey, I'm just curious too. Uh, did you ever, you ever feel like getting into law enforcement? I've, I've always too kind of wondered like why guys of your caliber come out of the military, not wanting to go into, into law enforcement. I never want to try out for anything ever again in my life. <laughs> that is the bottom line. Like I don't want to be back. You know, I took me that long to get to the top. I don't want to go back to the bottom. I would rather do it in this way where I just come in and, and I, here's my knowledge. Let's figure out how you guys can use it. To me, that's more important. You're probably making a bigger impact. I hope so. Because I I'm think not, so. Yeah. It's not yeah. one department, right? And yeah, there's exactly. a few guys, like there's a couple of guys, Virginia beach has one of our guys that, that went through. Uh, I think San Diego has a, has a guy on the divorce that went through. So some guys do, but most guys are just physically, I'm, I'm pretty broke too, you know, with the surgery. Yeah, and that's all. true. So thinking about putting kid on is hard sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes me 30 minutes to stand up in the morning. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it would be tough to want to, to want to do that again. Yeah. You, you made a good point, actually. I mean, imagine like if you, if you're embedded in a police department, he's one guy, one department, yeah. I think you make a much yeah. bigger impact doing what you're doing for everybody. Yeah. You know, I, and I have that long-term goal. I, I have a strategy, right? You got to where as guys are getting out, whether it's army or Navy tier one special operations, and they want to go back to their home community, wherever that is, I want to pay those guys to be me in that community. So if I get enough money to be able to do that, and, and you know, the way I look at it is I want to get to around a million dollars for each state that I'm in. That guy is going to be my program manager in his home state. He's still going to be able to do whatever job he wants to do, but he is the POC for all the law enforcement in that area. Mm. He's going to set up training for that area and I'll supply him the guys to do it. And if I can start getting guys who want to go back to their home communities, then man, we're, we're starting to make a national impact at that point. And that's we just got to get the goal. money there. I like yeah. it. That's, uh, a, that's like a solid vision. I, I think so. And it guys want to do it, right? And yeah. it's it's so much knowledge out there. And like you guys, we're starting to lose it, right? We're already four years removed, kind of. So we're going to start getting to a point where the experience just isn't there anymore. Yeah. And, you know, we want to utilize it and pass it on while we still can. Love it. I love it. Well, we thank you for, for making the trip from the East Coast all the way out here, sharing yeah. your information. Thank you for your service in the military and now what you're doing for our- Thank for you. Appreciate you guys. You. I appreciate a lot. And, and for me right now, what I'm trying to do is get the message out. So you guys like you hosting me and, and having me out here and, and letting me talk and hearing my side and, and my thoughts, it's, it's fantastic. So I really appreciate you guys. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah. Thank you, man. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Sullivan.